This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. Welcome to the Saturday morning breakfast show with me, Zoe Enser. I'm going a little bit rogue today, but uh, I'm sure I'll touch on many topics that I love, such as CPD, uh, marking, planning, behaviour, any hot topics that you've got, call in, let me know, and uh, we'll see where this show goes today. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. See, I did it again. That is my new signature start where I always press pause and really it thinks I mean to press play again. Good morning. Sorry for the delay. A slight technical hitch my end where it was still convinced I think that I'm a robot. Um, I'm clearly not. And, uh, and today we'll probably show you that as I go completely off script and see where today is going to end up. Uh, pleased to say there's some sun shining outside today and it's been... Uh, a really different uh, morning to the one that we uh, had yesterday with everything flying around and uh, just about surviving my journey on the motorway, which uh, I had to, to make. But uh, hopefully everybody stays safe. And it's lovely to see so many people popping into the studio this morning, uh, presumably to listen in to just to see where this will go when I don't have a script and uh, have very little idea about where this is going. So if you've got some uh, views, some thoughts that you want to share this morning, please do um, text in, call in. I'd love to hear what you have to say um, before I literally fill 90 minutes with uh, whatever comes into my head as this morning progresses. And as Mark Henser in the studio will tell you, that can be quite interesting. Uh, lots of strange segues, lots of uh, different directions, shall we say, that my thinking can go in uh, when I'm just letting it kind of flow. I do feel that I have to start, though, with uh, CPD again. As I've said on many, many occasions, this is my obsession. It is something that I am I'm really interested in, partly down to the fact that I've spent sort of 20 years, um, during which time I saw it going really, really wrong sometimes and uh, and had those same frustrations that I see other people having, thinking, what on earth am I doing? Why am I here? Why am I sitting here? Good morning. Uh, lovely to see people say hi in the studio today. Um, so, you know, that has been my obsession. And what I was really interested in exploring this morning was uh, this this idea of you know primary CPD because I'm very aware that uh, I've spent kind of 20 years predominantly working in secondary schools and uh, I hear a lot about CPD in primary schools and some of the issues and the difficulties and I don't always have that true understanding so if you've got a view on that or, or some thoughts on that I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to hear what your experiences have been. Um, you know one of the things with working with secondary is uh, kind of the structures that are in place in terms of subject area and content and uh, and how people work 
in teams across subject areas. I can I can really get my head around that. You know, I was uh, 14 years. I was a head of department. And so um, CPD, uh, a good question there is continuous professional development. Sometimes you'll hear it talked about in terms of continuous professional learning. And I am myself quite a big fan of thinking about it in terms of learning. I think development very much uh, kind of took us along this route to, of thinking it very much in terms of almost behavioural training. And, and there are aspects of things that we need to do to practice, to go over, and, and we need to embed it in the same way that students do. But I think we often forgot the learning aspect. So um, sometimes it's talked about in terms of personal development and just PD. Um, but I think, you know, the continuous for me was always really key because um, sometimes the professional development ended up just being a session in the hall where everyone gathered together and you never ever mentioned it again. It almost like you were embarrassed to talk about the things that had happened there. But as I say, you know, 14 years as a kind of head of department and then a further three years leading CPD and teaching and learning in my school, I really had a good understanding of how those structures could work to support um, the teachers' development and, and, and ongoing learning. Um, but I find it trickier seeing how that works in, in a primary setting. And I've worked with some primary schools who have um, maybe perhaps emulated some of those structures that I've seen elsewhere and they seem to have been working beautifully so there was one school I was working with and they made a big shift in the way a lot of their staff meetings were being used and they started to set up teaching and learning communities and they'd considered first as you should always do with uh, with CPD what were the needs of the school what was it that you were trying to develop in terms of the students learning what did you want those outcomes to look like so they'd spent a lot of time thinking about that and then they started to organise these, these kind of learning communities, um, professional learning communities, they're sometimes called as well. But these teaching learning communities, um, using that Dylan William model, model, where each term people would meet um, to discuss a particular aspect, to look at an element of research, to talk about how it related to their context. And uh, that seemed to be working really well for them. The area I perhaps find more difficult is when we stray into that subject knowledge, subject content area in primary. Um, you know, having gone into primary schools myself when I was at university to experience them, to see what was going on, I, I very quickly realised that um, what would be asked of me if I were to go into that particular phase was something that I wasn't sure I was able to give, the, the kind of breadth of knowledge that was required, even with a decent crop of, of GCSEs and some A-levels under my belt, I really was worried that I wouldn't be able to provide that and kind of ran away screaming quite quickly after two terms of volunteering on a Friday and decided that that wasn't for me. But we know that subject knowledge is really high on the agenda. We, we know that it's part of the Ofsted um, education inspection framework. We know that the subject reports that are coming through um, are really focusing in on that subject knowledge. And that's why um, those reports and reviews are being developed. Um, but how does that work in a primary school? And, and I have to say, I've got this kind of gap in my knowledge, which I'd love to, to kind of hear a bit about and to understand how it is that primary schools are doing that. And I, I can see Jo lingering in the studio there, and she's always really good throwing in some some comments there so if, if you've got a particular approach I know that uh, when I talked to Mike Hill a few weeks ago who was really passionate 
about subject knowledge and subject associations. <laughs> Joe jo looks aghast, horrified that I'm asking her to, to get to joining in there. Um, but uh, you always have something valuable to say, and I, and I love to hear from you, Joe. But uh, when we were talking about that we, uh, with Mike Hill on my show a few weeks ago, he was really passionate about the kind of history um, associations, the way that the community support each other and that development. And we did touch upon how primary schools could get involved with that and primary um, practitioners could get involved in that. But uh, again, how do the structures in school enable that? How is that supported? Um, how much time is given over to general pedagogy? And, and is that even more important in a primary setting? Than in a secondary setting can it ever be a situation as uh, we were talking about in secondary school where it's actually the subject that starts that and then what about middle schools is, is, you know how do how do they make that shift what what are the differences there and how might they change their approach so again you know if you've got some thoughts and views on that i would love to hear it um a, a little thumbs up from our rossi there um <laughs> perhaps it was the, the shout out to the middle schools because uh, you know i i definitely think that that's again an area that that is a sort of dearth of knowledge for me um they're not a, a kind of a setup and an establishment in our area um in my own school a few years ago we did try um i suppose it was quite a long-term experiment where we had identified that uh, the students that were coming up from our primary partners were really struggling in that first year and, and struggling to adapt. And there was a lot, a lot of talk and discussion around that, uh, that dip in terms of what they were achieving and how they were achieving. And so uh, we, we set up a system whereby we almost had a, a, a within school middle system i suppose and the, and the idea was that there were fewer teachers working in that area and uh, it meant that the, the kind of contacts and connections and the relationships with the primary partners could be stronger because they were only dealing with a few teachers um, as opposed to you know i know there should be one person for transition but we know in reality when that, that means disseminating that information across to english math science history and all of those other subjects a lot gets lost and, and that's an awful lot for one person to deal with. So um, we had this situation where just a small group of teachers, there were, there were kind of seven of them in the team, each had a responsibility for their subject area and they were selected from, from a range of different subjects. It was led by a uh, primary trained practitioner. So um, he's actually went on to, to go back to primary and is now ahead of a primary school. Um, and they had 14 hours just with those particular teachers, their, their tutors. And so they tried that model. And there were lots of pastoral benefits to that initially, although we did find that some of those same pastoral problems, even though you know the connections within school were much stronger, some of those pastoral problems were actually moving up and appearing in year eight. But what we struggled with most was that element of subject knowledge so even though there were kind of practitioners from across the school and people who were you know historians and were working with the history team people who were mathematicians and, and working in that way what the other teachers found really tricky was to be able to deliver those really detailed plans in an effective way that maintained that academic excellence that, that we wanted for them um, and provided the support 
in order to scaffold up to where we wanted them to be. So that was kind of my experience with that. And uh, although they met every week, um, a lot of that was focused on filling some of the gaps in terms of their subject knowledge, but not necessarily developing it in the breadth and depth of the same way that I saw in other areas. So I'm sure it's worked beautifully. Um, I've got a Nathan Lesson copy who is saying in my last primary school, they removed subject leaders as they were just nominal. And sometimes the process of sharing them out, some staff ended up with subjects they weren't confident in. Yeah, I hear about that a lot. I hear, you know, you were somebody you, you you played the I don't know the bassoon once when you were in sixth form so therefore you're going to be our music lead um, or you went on a field trip in geography um, you, you can be our geography lead now I know there are some exceptional teachers and, and subject leads out there in primary who certainly haven't got that experience and have got this amazing kind of wealth of, of knowledge behind them but I do hear that a lot um, on Twitter people saying you know, I, I've just ended up with this subject because nobody else wanted it or because, you know, I, I didn't look the wrong way at the time when they were handing it out. So I think, um, yes, that, that that could certainly potentially be a problem. But then what do you do as a particularly small primary school? What do you do in order to be able to deal with that? Um, that's a, a really, really tricky one because we know that they, you know, the people working there are going to be wearing many, many hats. And so, you know, do you focus on that general pedagogy? How do you deal with the demands that are being placed uh, upon the, the kind of subject areas? We know we want the students to be able to develop. Uh, oh, and Joe has said, she, I, I asked Mary Myatt that the other day. What did Mary say, Joe? Please tell me, because, I, you know, I know that she's got her book, uh, Her, which uh, with John Thompson, which I think is fab fabulous. Um, I've read the secondary version and I loved the way that um, what they were doing there was really equipping those line managers because you know there's this assumption that if you're line managing an area you're really going to understand the curriculum and what's going on there um, but um, the, the, the kind of way in which you're expected to explore it, it it's not about us as line managers having all the answers it's about being able to have those really effective conversations that support and help and to develop that kind of level of, of curriculum thinking. Um, Joe said, she, yes, you can call him, please do. I would love to hear from you. And I'd love to hear what Mary said because she's obviously now got um, her primary one that she's working on. Hi, Joe, are you with me? Hello, can you hear me? Hello, I can, good morning, thank good morning. you. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really interesting. Um, so Noreen was talking to John Thompson and Mary Myatt the other day, and I said that because we're in a quite small primary. Um, so I currently lead um, MFL English uh, and History and Geography. And um, wow. <laughs> MF I know, I'm not, not brilliantly. Um, the English is probably the thing that I've got the most experience in. Um, but geography and history, I've had to just read loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff about so that I actually understand a bit more. Um, MFL I was given basically because I'm I'm French, so that's it was. So yeah, that's it. You're fine. You'll know exactly how to teach yeah, it. Just I have no idea it. how to teach it. However, I can speak it. And and the um, uh, but Mary Myatt was saying to kind of look around at the thing that was, you know, just just go really slow and just pick one at a time and try and improve one at a time rather than trying to do them all at the same time, which is um, 
what I've been trying to do. So, <laughs> um, so sort of look. And then she was saying that she's developing a section of her website that has lots of um, links to topic books or books, high quality texts that can help you deliver that kind of subject knowledge to um, uh, subjects that you aren't so confident in um, while you kind of get up to speed with other things. Does that make sense? Absolutely does. And, and, and I think that's a message that Mary comes back to a lot that, you know, schools are these incredibly busy places and the temptation to try to deal with everything at once, you know, simultaneously and everything's a priority. Yeah. And actually that can take us down the, you know, a really tricky route because we, you know, we, we can't, we can't fix everything at the same time no. and so I, I think that really does make sense and that's stripping it back and saying right what do I need to focus on what is my priority here um I, I think it's really important Clive and uh, Hill in in the chat has said when everything is a priority nothing is yeah, and, uh, yeah absolutely I think that that's wise wise words there definitely um so you know in terms of, I've got, I've got you here now, so I'm not going to um, So in terms of how CPD then works, I, I know that, you know, we, you spoke before about, um, you know, your own development and being involved and looking to see what some of the subject associations and, and, and training that's been offered in your area as well. Yeah. But how do the structures within school really support that kind of subject knowledge I suppose as you know as distinct from generic pedagogy I think we we tend to I was trying to think about this and I think for the last the last three schools I've worked in it's all been the majority of the focus of uh, sort of school-wide CPD has been on um, either on phonics so whichever provider we use then generally comes in and, and delivers training and that that would kind of fit that subject knowledge part um, or, or sort of just general, general stuff, really. So, um, or time in my currently in my current school is given over to um, developing. So each each year group team plans together across the trust mm-hmm. um, and delivers their unit kind of based on, you know, the the long term overviews and things. And and um, but in terms of specific subject knowledge, it tends to be provided from the um, local authority and we can kind of choose to sign up for various subject things but it but it's hard because it tends to be for subject leaders and then how do you disseminate that information to the other teachers without um, things getting uh, mutated along the way you know your sort Mm -hmm. of lethal mutations idea and 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 you then put your own spin on things or you you repeat what you listened to and somebody else might have listen to something slightly different so yeah that is I think that is a bit of a problem Mm. yeah and I think you know what what you're what you're saying there in terms of that mutation and how do you disseminate it you know even within a secondary setting I've known people that would kind of go off onto an exam board course um, or or, you know had had gone away to to something that was very specific and actually finding the time at the right time yeah. at an appropriate time that doesn't mean kind of well I'll, I'll schedule you three months down the line you can then come back and sit and yes. explore this when you've forgotten this. it <laughs> yeah absolutely you know and, and it's been crazy and, and I, I saw that happen a lot and it felt that uh, maybe that one person was benefiting hugely yes from that. yeah but I think that is the risk thing. isn't it 
it absolutely is. Um, Rachel says, says uh, using a quality assured off the peg scheme actually provides CPD for subject knowledge and the springboard for moving forward and developing. I think, yeah, yeah. That, that is a good, a really good point. And it, there's an interesting relationship, I think, with off the peg um, resources. I saw that there was a teacher tap question that was asking about yeah. planning using other people's materials, other people's resources. Is that something that you've found benefits has benefited you? Um, I think there's two sides to that. The first thing is we, it, I don't know about other schools, but ours, ours tends to be focused on things like um, PE and um, computing and uh, MFL, actually, um, <laughs> where, where you're kind of using an off-the-peg scheme which is fine but the danger with that is that people just kind of plug and play with it they don't mm -hmm. they don't kind of use the um the it almost de-skills them in terms of their own subject knowledge because mm -hmm. they're they're just using the scheme that's been put forward by so and it's they're good but it depends on how people interact with it mm -hmm. that's and that's probably a risk with everything isn't it Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've certainly seen that at secondary, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of there being centralised planning. Yeah. But who develops that centralised planning and how that centralised planning, I think, is key, because just yeah. saying, well, there's like there's 20 PowerPoints in there, you can run through them. Yeah. Isn't going to make for the best lessons in my experience. No, I think I think generally in my experience, the, the most detailed planning has or the most detailed CPD that's been subject specific has been linked to sort of English maths mm. and phonics and the other subjects are less are less focused on mm. um but that might just be my my experience but um definitely that seems to be you get mm. much more understanding of your own subject knowledge in those subjects rather than rather than in geography and history, which can be quite different in different primaries, mm -hmm. can't it? That's probably not massively yeah. helpful for you guys because you, you're then taking children from a range of different primaries that have all had slightly different curricula and then... Yeah, um, absolutely. I 100% I, I agree there. And I, th I think, you know, there's a, there's a benefit to the fact that um, obviously the SATs and the focus on the maths and the focus on the, the reading and the mm. phonics that means that there is that real kind of drive for mm. making sure what's being delivered is delivered in a, you know, the, the, the way that is perhaps going to lead them to be most successful. And there's, there's all sorts of questions around what that means anyway. Mm. But, um, and I, I remember when science was sort of taken off of the SATs, the kind of concerns about what happens to the science curriculum now that uh, it's not being assessed in the same way or viewed in the same way does that mean that it's going to be like geography history RS? Did, and did it end up like that that's a good question I don't know um it was certainly a fear it was certainly a concern um have, has there been any evidence for it I don't know you know I, I would have to turn to kind of the primary teachers and indeed the secondary um scientists to say have they experienced it you know obviously there, there's this constant dialogue isn't there about primary secondary and have yeah. they been prepared in the in the way that they need to be prepared is that causing them issues then for transition is it is it harder for the children to move up because of the curriculum differences and the expectation differences yeah um but you know yeah I, I don't think I've got an answer so I'd love to hear <laughs> anybody anybody's thoughts of that um Rachel says with the new RSE statutory requirements we found a quality assured PSHE program invaluable yeah yeah 
regular team meetings uh, to feedback efficacy, monitoring and development, efficacy um, mm. with anything, you know, again, even if, you know, when, when I first um, moved up as head of department, um, I was arriving at a school that was actually burnt down, which was interesting. So, so people were saying to me, "Why are you going to a school that doesn't exist? It's porter cabins. <laughs> it got burnt down." But I went there anyway. But it also meant that most schemes of work were apparently burnt down. I, I actually don't think that the schemes of work existed beforehand. So you could start um, start from scratch. I did, which was exciting. But yeah. at the same time, um, you know, I created these really detailed schemes of work because I didn't want to leave everybody floundering. Yeah, but I could easily walk into two lessons supposedly delivering the same thing, and they'd yeah. be delivering something completely different. They yeah. have their plan in front of them, and it's like, but they've that's interpreted it in different ways <laughs> completely. And so yeah. without that time, we're um, we're a brand new school, so we've been open since two thousand and nineteen, which is why we're quite small at the moment. And um, we do have a sort of sister school that's the the trust lead um so there's loads of things that's already in place there but trying to start things that's why i think we're tempted to run before we can walk and, and trying to get everything um really quickly up to speed because we kind of want to to keep pace with the sister school and i think that you know we, we kind of put that pressure on ourselves really a little bit um but we're yeah we're in almost a similar boat because we're able to start from scratch and go well you know does this scheme work for our children and we use a we use a scheme for um, PSHE, um, but it's just changed to a different scheme where the the uh, the objectives are really clearly mapped out, but the way that you teach it isn't, and so wow. that that's that's actually really tricky because I might think, okay, so I've got to teach this, so I'll go off and I'll find some things that, and somebody else would have the same objectives and and teach it in a completely different way, and so mm -hmm. that's tricky, um, but I guess that's so that we all um, develop our subject knowledge around that subject. Yeah, certainly I've seen, you know, in English in the past, there's been those schemes where you've just had your objective. And, and as long as you're meeting that objective in some way, mm. that's kind of considered okay. But it can yeah. mean that the actual day-to-day -day experience and the diet of those pupils can be quite different so you need that team don't you you need that yeah. kind of sense of of working together and exploring together yeah i was just i was just looking at the thing and clive has said that he's got some really varied um his his feeder schools are quite varied mm. and, he, and i think the thing is that most primaries would really welcome that interaction with secondaries as well yeah in terms of okay so what do what do they need to be successful what do they really need to understand by the time they get to you and mm -hmm. and how best can we support them to do that um but it's just how does that get organized and and because there's yeah. so many feeder schools how would you how could you do that without making sure all primaries taught in exactly the same way yeah it is it's really tricky and and, and certainly when i was first working because obviously I, I work for the local authority and mm. one of the first things i wanted do and, and I met with um, one of my primary colleagues was to try to map the reading experiences so what kind of reading curriculum yes. had been developed and um, you know I, I'm dealing with I think it's 110 schools um, that we kind of deal with but the primary team were dealing with 600 schools yeah so it was <laughs> a few different ways to do that and, and, and Unfortunately, I didn't get it off the, off the ground in the way that I wanted, partly down to COVID and, every, and curriculum changes were all yeah. over the place there. But I did, um, 
kind of put that idea to a few of my secondaries that I was working with. And I know one in particular who has only got, um, I think that they've got about 15 feeder schools, which is a bit more manageable. But the head of English, um, he actually just did a very simple Google Doc just to capture the reading experiences of yes. the pupils that were coming up. And, and, and that's very different to capturing the whole curriculum. But yeah. at least he knew and, and he could check for a sort of replication um, and then start that dialogue as well. You know, that's a really interesting yeah. textual teaching there. Can you tell me a bit more about it? So some of those perhaps difficulties um, in exploring curriculum from those two different angles started to change. So I, I was really pleased that he did that. Um, and, and I, you know, I haven't got an answer for that one yet, but um, I'm still we, working on it. In the last mat that I worked at, it had a secondary um, as well as us kind of feeder primary. So there was about four of us and we had some, uh, we're, I teach in an area which is, has a massive proportion of um, military kids. Mm. And so there are pockets of funding that are available from the MOD for supporting things like um, transitions and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a project running where we developed a reading spine across the trust mm -hmm. but we asked the secondary um the reading lead at the secondary to tell us what texts they thought would be really beneficial for the children to have had experience on mm -hmm. that would then link into their curriculum so that the children had that sort of common um mm -hmm. background reading experience so that when they got there they could say you know I don't know I think one of the texts that they said would be really helpful was Black Beauty for example I'm not yeah, entirely yeah. sure why but that was um, <laughs> that was one of the texts that they thought would be really handy for children to have experienced before they got to them so that was I thought that was really beneficial. Um, that's a, that's an interesting one actually because it's a, a text that I'm seeing quite a lot on the curriculum in year seven um, oh. which might mean that we we end up back in those some of those situations where people go but hang on didn't they do that in year six or didn't they do that in year yeah. five it's quite a challenge you know it was, it was one of my favorites um yeah. but uh, um, <laughs> I, I was a real horsey girl and I, I yes, love listening to Black Beauty <laughs> but um it's quite challenging in terms of its language um yeah. because of when it's written um and so the exposure to some of the vocabulary and some of the settings could be really useful but you know it does potentially lead us back to this idea of you know is there a obsession with the kind of Victorian literature um yeah. and, and the kind of with that eye to the GCSE spec where they're going to have to be studying Dickens or Stevenson and and, and oh, those yeah. different texts but um but you know at the same time I could see there'd be a real joy in teaching that um, although you know how I would cope with my feelings over ginger when we got to that part, of the game, <laughs> I don't know. You have to just but, like bolt into the into the cupboard oh, yeah, a little week. I, I wouldn't be able to cope with that one at all. But uh, no, but I, I think you know that that spine, that discussion, that dialogue is so important. Um, Carl, you know, I'll go back to the the chat here. Um, Joe, thank you ever so much. Uh, I hope I'm not kind of calling you away from some wonderful things that, you, that you're no, doing. My middle one is currently um, my middle one currently sewing stuff and has just appeared with something that she wants oh, me to look at. <laughs> well, well, Carl says White Rose Math is an example of off-the-peg curriculum where the success is based on teacher understanding. Um, and I, I hear a lot about that. And, but, I, you know, at the same time, I've also seen some criticism of White Rose. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, again, it's going to be about the delivery, isn't it? It's going to be about what you do with anything that's off-the-peg. Um, Rachel says, uh, with the new RSE statutory requirements, we found a quality assured PSE programme. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm going back to that previous point there, which I do think is, is really important. Um, 
let's see what else I've got. Um, I'd love help with CPD with science specialists in primary. Yes, definitely. Timetable is already packed. That's the thing. It's everybody has got so much on their plate. It's really tricky to find that time. Um, I know some schools, you know, I, I certainly know Mark from a geography perspective. Um, he worked in a school where he was given a, an hour a fortnight, I think it was, in order to go and work with a primary feeder school in order to help and uh, to develop that. And he was actually delivering lessons and working with them um, in that real partnership about it. But it is really, really tricky to just, you know, we are always talking about time. How do we find um, the time for these things um, when we know that that's what we want to be able to achieve? But, you know, we need the structures in place in order to be able to do that. Um, sounds right. CPD scripts. This is Mabel. Scripts assessment diagnostic. This ensures consistency and children know where they are. Um, reading curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. is so important. Um, and it, and it is and again, it's tricky when you are dealing with lots of different schools and it comes back to, you know, do we want a centralised curriculum where everybody is following very similar things? Well, I know lots of reasons why there's a, there's a great deal of pushback on that. But there are certain key areas where we need to have that clear development. We need to have that working through. Uh, Mabel says the NCETM using sentence stems and detailed planning for mental maths and number sense alongside CPD is also effective. Problem is using, uh, is many using white rows and this isn't dovetailing well in many cases, that's interesting. So it's kind of thinking about how these things all come together and, and how they're working um, in unison there. Um, good quality booklets working for us in humanities, again, uh, you know, a fan for, for of booklets, that centralized planning um that that really can make a difference i know that um clive uh would, clive hill would be a big fan of that sorry mark i got it wrong it was two hours a week it was a long time ago i can't remember everything that you've done in your career i have enough trouble remembering what i've done in mine um and mabel says yeah our curriculum is overloaded in key stage three the balance is not easy and and i find that quite crazy and i'm, I'm sure there will be some english teachers who disagree with me but um when you get to key stage three, I always find we have an awful lot of space um, in terms of English and what we can deliver. And, and I know I hear kind of scientists saying, but we've got to cover this. If we don't cover this, we're going to have all sorts of issues when it comes to GCSE. And we, we have a lot of freedom, I would say, in English as to what we cover. Yes, we want them to get to that point where they're going to be able to tackle those more challenging texts, they're going to be able to analyse, they're going to be able to write effectively but how we do that um the the national curriculum is quite sparse so I, I find it interesting that uh, it's very very different when you kind of look at um the the other key stages and indeed even in the same key stage when you're kind of looking across a, a, and seeing what's happening in those other subject areas um and lots about this curriculum being really heavily packed and how we can do that yeah and, and joe's <coughs> agreeing absolutely with Mabel. Now I can feel a coughing fit coming on so I'm going to uh, pop the news on and um, I'm happy to carry on discussing this. I'm happy for other people to call in. I do think somebody did try to call in earlier and I'm very happy for them to call back if you want to call back after the news but we'll play that and let me get my coughing fit out of the way and then I'll be back with you.
This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen great improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, We'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Following reports earlier this week of the UCAS announcement that 2020 to 2021 saw a surge in applicants to university from students from disadvantaged backgrounds, one of Greater Manchester's universities revealed data showing that nearly 99% of its students last year fell into one or more of the five core underrepresented groups. In a report in the Manchester Evening News, the University of Bolton highlights figures showing that last year, 28% of applicants were from disadvantaged areas up from 17% in 2013. University bosses say that these figures show that the university is helping students climb the social and economic ladder. The university's Vice-Chancellor, Professor George E. Holmes, said, The University of Bolton is proud to have one of the most diverse and inclusive student populations in the UK. Widening participation projects take place across the UK and are designed to improve access, success and progression for underrepresented groups in higher education. The Birmingham Live News website reports on Birmingham City Council's leader's plea to leave Trojan Horse in the past. It follows calls by the Muslim Council of Britain, as well as teachers and governors, for a public inquiry into events that unfolded in Birmingham schools in 2014, after concerns were expressed that the events caused lasting and negative impact on local Muslims and perceptions of their faith. There are also calls for a public apology to those caught up in the affair. Trojan Horse was the name given to an alleged plot by hardline Islamists to take over some Birmingham schools. The alleged plot was revealed by the Birmingham Mail after an anonymous letter claimed dirty tricks were being used to oust non-Muslim staff from city schools. Four separate inquiries were launched at the time, including probes by Birmingham City Council, the Department for Education and Ofsted. No evidence of extremism or of a plot were found. 
Birmingham City Council's Deputy Leader, Councillor Bridget Jones, in charge of city schools in 2014, says the city has long since moved on, whilst others claim the issue is unresolved and that investigations at the time were rooted in Islamophobia. The issue has been raised again following a podcast by the New York Times probing the origins of the letter which kick-started the investigations. In the Channel Island of Guernsey, plans for a new sixth-form centre and the closing of one of the island's state high schools have been delayed by a year. The new secondary model had been due to start by September 2024, but the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture said the decision to delay was made after talking to the construction industry. Education President Andrea Dudley-Owen said in a BBC News report, it's more important that we get it right rather than rushing to meet an arbitrary deadline. It is another delay for parents, pupils and staff on what has been a decade-long process of transforming secondary education on the island, a process that has seen promises made by committees which have then not come to fruition. In a research paper published on the FIS.org website, it suggested that pre-primary education played a protective role against COVID learning losses in sub-Saharan Africa. In a study of more than 2,600 children in Ethiopia, researchers found that among pupils who entered primary education immediately after schools reopened, learning losses were far less severe if they'd been in pre-primary education prior to the pandemic. The learning deficit among children without pre-primary experience was four times greater. However, the study also shows that pre-primary education was also the most neglected part of the Ethiopian government's COVID education response. Full details of the study can be found on the FIS.org website. The study was commissioned through the World Bank's Early Learning Partnership and undertaken by the University of Cambridge, Addis Ababa University and the Ethiopian Policy Studies Institute. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safe Internet Week with the official day being on Tuesday the 8th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre is questioning whether gaming online is all fun and games. They ask young people to explore respect and relationships in online gaming. A lot of schools may be having drop down days and you may be expected to deliver an online safety lesson. This is great, but are you confident in your knowledge? There's nothing worse than having to teach a lesson out of your comfort zone, especially when you're discussing a topic where the learners may know more than the teacher. Saferinternet.org.uk, the brains behind Safer Internet Day, have come to the rescue with a series of films under the heading of virtual assemblies on their website. Starting with a story about in-app purchases getting out of hand for three to seven year olds, and then for seven to 11 and 11 to 18s, having a discussion on online behavior and respect. This resource is informative and will allow those of us that are less confident to play the film and facilitate a discussion. As always, if you're going to use an online resource, make sure you've watched it first to make sure it's appropriate for your pupils. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, Steve, for that two-minute tech, and thank you, Joe, for the news. Um, yes, uh, I always like his reminder that uh, we really need to check those resources before we play them in class. Um, 
I was so pleased when uh, I, I finally found out a way to get rid of the adverts um, when you wanted to use a YouTube clip because uh, they could take you in all sorts of directions that you really didn't want to go into um, and uh, probably just as well that I don't talk in too much detail about some of the directions that it's taken me in at all. Um, thank you ever so much for your contribution so far this morning. Um, I have been talking about uh, CPD in primary and the difficulties, the intricacies in being able to develop subject knowledge in particular. Um, and there's been some fantastic advice in terms of um, using the, the resources that are available, um, making use of those existing schemes, but also then how do you ensure that what people are developing and, and in terms of their understanding is really there. And, um, and then we kind of moved into that discussion around the, the cross-phase working and how um, secondary schools and primary schools can, can really work together in order to be able to develop uh, what they need for, for the young people that they're working with. Because, you know, that is what we all want. We want to give them the best opportunities um, and give them the, those kind of ways in which that they can develop their learning, that they can take that further. And uh, the more we can work together, the, the better that would be. But of course, all the time, we have that constraint um, in these really busy packed schedules, um, these busy curriculums as well, where, where people are having to kind of meet the demands of various different things. Um, and uh, I was just kind of pondering on the, the relative space that we have at Key Stage 3 for English um, in terms of what we are developing there. And, and you know, Maybe it means that I was doing my curriculum incorrectly or something, but uh, but I certainly see that there's a, a lot more opportunity there to think about what we approach and, and how we approach it that perhaps isn't afforded to other subject areas. Um, if you'd like to call in um, or text in to let me know your thoughts on that, I would definitely appreciate it. I'm, I'm very aware that I've got another 43 minutes remaining of my show and and I did threaten that I was going to go rogue and I've been very well behaved so far I, I've really kind of stayed on topic and um and uh, I when I go off topic who who quite knows where I'm going to end up Carl Vandal says one of the original concepts of the whole AST role was to be involved in primary liaison yeah and I, and I think that was used in lots of different ways in different areas um, I've got Tracy trying to encourage me. You, you, know, you do not know what you are, telling me to go rogue, go rogue. Um, but, uh, you know, I was a, an AST at, at one school and primary transition just, well, you know, there were, there were too many issues within the school that needed to be dealt with, uh, not least the fact that, you know, they needed to put some walls up, which they eventually did because we were teaching 90 students with three members of staff in, uh, in what they were calling pods. And so when I was an AST there, primary transition it would have been wonderful I would have loved to have spent some time doing that but as it as it was I was just trying to create a, a situation where students could get taught um, in an appropriate way um, that the English curriculum or indeed the humanities curriculum when I was going in and, and picking up some pieces from in there because it, it was it was an interesting experiment and um, and maybe this will be my segue into going rogue um, as Tracy's trying to encourage me to do um, because I, I did want to talk about behaviour because um, a lot of people, you know, they hear my name and, and either they think, you know, who's she? I haven't got a clue who she is. Or um, that they will think, oh, that's that Zoe Enser. She knows about English because she's an English secondary specialist 
And um, she might know a bit about CPD because she goes on quite a lot about that. And they might even think about me in terms of generative learning because I've written a book um, on that area. So, so there are the possibilities. But actually, spending, well, I started at first in schools in, in 1997. So um, there, I know that there are people listening who may or, or, or might listen back who may not have even been born or might have still been toddling around at that stage. So I spent a lot of time in schools and it meant that, that my understanding, my experiences had kind of branched in lots of different directions. And my first you know, role in school was as a learning support assistant. And uh, I spent two years working. <laughs> Carl's got five years on me. You, you, you've got a lot on me, Carl. Yeah, five, five years, <laughs> I would say, uh, in terms of teaching. But a long, long time I've been there. So I started off um, in this learning support assistant role. Um, didn't really, you know, I, I hadn't had this intention to go into schools. I'd, I'd been interested in them, obviously, because I spent two years volunteering on a Friday in primary schools when, when I was doing my, um, my degree in English. Um, and it just seemed like a worthy thing to do um, at that particular time. My, my son was at school and uh, my friend was going into uh, her local primary school. And I thought, well, I'll give that a try and I'll, I'll see what happens there and see how that works. So it's been an interest. And uh, even going back before that, um, I didn't do my work experience when I was at school, when the rest of the, uh, the, my peers did in year 10 because uh, I'd had a very lucky opportunity to be taken away on, uh, on a holiday of a lifetime to Australia for four weeks during that period by my older brother. And so I missed out on that. But being really diligent, I decided I didn't want to miss out on the, that work experience. So signed myself up after I finished my GCSEs to spend uh, what must have been about you know, three, four weeks at a local primary school um, to get the sense of what was going on there. Um, and, and interestingly, I look back and I think, well, I did have work experience because I've been working in a shop since I was 14. And uh, I'd also done some voluntary work at a vet's when I thought that was what I wanted to be and uh, got attacked by cats when I had to clean them out and decided maybe I didn't want to do that after all. Um, so I, I spent th th this time in a primary school then. So it obviously always been an interest um, and the teacher used to go away a couple of afternoons a week and leave me with the, my guitar and um, a, a group of year five pupils and, and just have some breathing space, I think. I think she just wanted some time to, to do something else. And, or occasionally I read them a story rather than just sang them songs or sang songs with them. So, um, yeah, those poor children, I really do feel for them now when I look back at, at that experience. So anyway, you know, I, I, I said I was going to ramble. And uh, I, I ended up after my degree thinking, well, what can I do? I want to teach maybe adults. I, you know, I know that primary school isn't my kind of forte. This isn't working for me. So uh, I'll go and think about teaching adults. Oh, what do I need? Um, perhaps some more studying. I really like studying, so I'll do an MA. And they really wanted lots of money for me to be able to do that. So I thought I probably needed a job and saw my old school was advertising for a learning support system. Didn't really know much about it, but knew that when I was going into primary schools, I'd really enjoyed the work with, uh, that I did when I was working one-to-one -one, um, or when I was working with small groups of, of pupils. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll give that a go. And uh, whatever it was about me in those first 
few days, they decided that the student that was coming up from primary school, where everyone was anticipating he wasn't going to make it to half term because his um, issues in terms of behaviour was statemented, um, his issues in terms of behaviour meant that he was unlikely to make it to half term. So they looked at me um, and went, we'll see how she gets on. So off you, off you go with him. A timetable of uh, 14, 15 hours um, a week supporting him to try and, and make him be as, you know, allow him to be as successful as possible. Academically, um, he was very capable. Um, he had really good knowledge, really good general knowledge was, uh, I suppose, when I say bright, I, I, I don't mean, you know, in that in terms of the, the kind of, oh, you know, he's just academically able. I, I mean that he was really curious and interested and switched on to lots of things. Um, but that also meant that he could be quite impulsive and um, in his behaviours could be quite tricky. So I have spent a lot of time right from that very first thinking about, well, how do we deal with behaviour? How do we manage behaviour? What do we do in order to support young people in this setting? Um, particularly one who, you know, in that particular in that instance, you know, he hadn't been successful, but he'd been excluded multiple times from his primary school, including for attempting to throw a brick through his uh, head teacher's window when he was angry with him, um, would be quite physically violent. Um, and and the other pupils found him quite threatening too. So there was an awful lot. To, to take on board from those early stages and you know again looking back I kind of question I did have a lot of support it was a fantastic learning support department um, and, and a really good team that supported each other we're also working with um, a huge number of students who had real difficulties outside of schools and that gave me a, an insight into what some of their lives were like but I was also supporting a student with that ASD um, in maths who the reason again they, they said Zoe you need to go and support him was because I was the only person who had a um, GCSE a higher GCSE in maths at that particular time uh, everyone else had found maths was a real struggle and there was lots of maths anxiety within the department so um, he was a student that they were hoping to get an A from and so I, off I went to, to support him there and, and there were interesting behaviour challenges that I had to deal with there because um, he didn't always understand a lot of the, the cues, the social cues that people were giving him, that behaviours were inappropriate. Um, and also was incredibly liter literate, um, uh, uh, literal, sorry, uh, perhaps more so than um, other ASD students that I've met. So um, if you asked him to go into another classroom or to go and stand um, over the other side of the room, you needed to be really specific with your instruction to then come back because he, he really wouldn't understand that that kind of level of, of nuance that there was an expectation or an un, unseen expectation that he'd come back after doing something so like I say you know but behavior has been interesting none of the schools that I really worked in until the last five years had any clear systems or structures around behavior it was very much yes things would escalate and they had the procedures for sending somebody to a head of department well I was a head of department for a lot of time so it meant that sometimes my classroom got very very packed with additional students as that was the only system in place or if things became too difficult then they would look at kind of alternatives uh, that included uh, there was a, an isolation room 
but the isolation room was also very much around therapy and support and development and that meant that some students yes they got an opportunity to calm down but then they quite liked being in that area and they wanted to be in that area it was seen as a safer space so I think I started to consider how could I make my classroom and the classrooms of the other people that I was supporting in, in the school without a system in place a safer space for everyone um, and that really brought me around to the idea of routines and I'm a real fan of very clear explicit instructions clear explicit expectations and and clear routines that um, I would expect students to enter the room in certain ways and, it, and it, it's things that you know we, we see now a lot in Teach Like a Champion and the approaches there I didn't slant I didn't have those kind of ways of approaching things um, and I, I would kind of expect people to do things hello I've got Dr Mousy coming in so I'm going to let him in quickly before he disappears hello Dr Mousy how can I help you oh has he gone has he run away that that's shocking oh hello a uh, long time listener first time caller uh, I just wanted to <laughs> chime in and say when you talk about uh, I, I'm experiencing that exact problem right now in schools where a lot of children are finding being in the, in the classrooms really challenging and they're finding it very hard and they would rather be in the isolation room or in an exclusion room because I suppose they can get on with work and they do produce great work when they're by themselves. They are great, very well-motivated students and we have those routines. We have those embedded routines, but I suppose we adhere to them quite strictly and the fear is that by doing so, um, we drive students out. I'm a big believer in them myself. I just worry that I don't know how to reconcile children choosing um, a path which offers them the privacy and sort of develop by themselves versus how they struggle in the classroom. <laughs> Big question, a really interesting question though. Um, and I think what, you know, it's going to sound horribly cliched and I don't want to say relationships and, and, and be that really dismissive person that goes, it's all down to relationships if you have the right relationships. But, and, and I know this is something um, that you do, but it, it's about those conversations before the lesson. I think that that for me was, uh, was quite a big thing. Having those conversations about my expectations, having a conversation about the work that was, was about to, to come along. Um, sometimes it, it's tricky when you've got someone who's saying, well, actually, because of the classroom environment, I can't work in there. I want to, uh, you know, that I want to work somewhere else. I think that's a slightly different issue to perhaps um I, I don't want to adhere to those kind of strict regimes that's that's you know, i don't like the word regime either but the, you know there's strict boundaries that are putting into place but i think always um it's within those structures having those conversations talking about what the issues are and i think that preparing students for what's to come made a big difference for me, um, I think back to perhaps one of my most complex students that I worked with in the last few years. Um, and uh, he was undergoing a diagnosis for ASD, ADHD, um, and had various things that were, that were going on with him. And uh, I always found that if I went and spoke to him beforehand and said, right, remember, this is what we do in the lesson. Remember, this is what we've been looking at last lesson. And, and so I would actually do that conversation before outside of the classroom space then when he came in I would subtly acknowledge him and again that's down to relationships because you know what a subtle acknowledgement is in comparison to, to you know for one student that's going to be subtle for another student they're going to miss it 
another student, they're going to think you're drawing attention to them. So I think it's always coming back to that. But I, you know, you've got to have that clarity. You've got to have that structure. But then I think having that exploration within that um, is important. Does that sort of answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Zoe. Thank you for calling in, first time caller. Have a lovely day, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Um, who have I? Let's have a little look at my messages there. Hopefully, as behaviour proves in the classroom, everyone will want to be there as the atmosphere is better. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark, there. Um, and I think that's what I was saying. You know, I, I don't want to be that person that, as I say, that says relationships because you what you have is you have the structures, you have the, the behaviours, you have the routines. You have the security in knowing what those expectations are. And I think it's tricky in a school, you know, as I say, you know, I, I worked in schools where there wasn't that big structure until the last five years. Um, and before that, it really was, you know, what happened in your classroom was going to be very different to what happened in another classroom and very different to what happened in, to, in another. And I think that's where some of that insecurity comes in because the students don't know where they stand. And that's why I think it's important to have that clarity in the systems and the structures that you're using across the school. But then it's within that that you have those conversations, that you develop those relationships, that you, you, know, you use humour in order to diffuse situations where appropriate or, you know, you, you, you know they get to see you. And, and I can remember very early in my career being see, um, observed by um, somebody new to the profession. And... I hadn't realised it at all, but she said to me, you give an awful lot of yourself in how you explain things and how you explore things. And I was worried initially that she thought I was going off on a tangent um, and that it meant I was kind of talking about irrelevancies. But what she was talking about was, you know, the, the warmth, the, the, the interactions, the, you know, where you stand, where you position yourself, um, how you might change your tone slightly when you're talking to someone else and we unpicked it and we explored that and uh, and I realized that she's probably right that I did give a lot of you know of my own being as a human as opposed to a teacher in those classroom settings and that comes back to to the relationships there and uh, Rachel says uh, relationships thrive where there's an agreed understanding of expectation structure and routine yeah absolutely and and I think that insecurity of students seeing students coming from a lesson where one thing was expected and then come to another and, and it was completely different that they didn't know where to stand and I, I can remember when I was working with um with groups because obviously I would I would support across all sorts of subject areas and there were some teachers where that the inconsistency would be within their own lesson as well so students were never sure how you know if I do this what's the reaction going to be um if that person does that what's the reaction going to be and so you've got to be really clear in your mind too about where the lines are what the expectations are and, and that's especially important if you don't have the systems and structures to support that um and and an awareness and and i suppose that an element of empathy to be able to see what's going on with students and to, and to be able to support them to deal with that um Mabel says the term reasonable adjustment and how it's interpreted can be problematic absolutely it can be and um you know, there are all sorts of things that we do that are reasonable adjustment, which don't just mean that a student doesn't have to follow a rule or don't just mean that a student then has to, you know, it can't have a consequence. 
Um, there, there are certain things that we, that we do all the time that are reasonable adjustments because we know that student. And I, I always think I was quite lucky teaching English because sometimes I would have them for eight hours a fortnight and work with them eight hours a fortnight or even 10 hours a fortnight um, in, with some year groups. And that's a lot of time to get to know somebody. And if, if those relationships weren't right and I didn't understand the students and understand where they were coming from and what things were potentially going to be difficult so I could preempt them, so that I could support them, I could prepare them, I could give them breathing space if that's what they needed. If I didn't know that, that, that kind of eight hours, that 10 hours a fortnight could have been quite horrendous um, and, and it would be a battle. And, and that doesn't really benefit anybody if it becomes a battle. Mabel says, recently on Twitter chat, the um, teacher stating that he sends child out only for them to be ushered straight back in by SLT because they need to be in the classroom. That's really, really tricky. And it takes away um, an element of professional judgment. And I have worked in schools where you know that the corridors were going to be this real issue because students would be sent out to stand on the corridors for however long it was for the teacher to be able to go out and do that. You end up with all sorts of corridor behaviour. You end up with this kind of labelling. You know, we're, we're, we're the group that gets sent out. Sometimes students have coordinated that in the past as well, um, that they've, they've decided that they're going to write 10 minutes in, I'll kick off. We'll all go and meet down by the toilets because that will be better than being in the lesson. But I think that comes back to Mark's point, you know, that if behaviour is good and, the, and what we're really offering is good, and again, I'm not going down that route of, you know, if our lessons are good enough, students will want to stay. But if the, if the environment is right and they can see the value of uh, the learning that we're giving them, then students won't want to do that um, in the main. But it is still an issue. Um, I never would, uh, you know, as, as SLT, just ushered them straight back in. Um, clearly, whatever had gone on needed unpicking and it needed time. Yes, of course, they need to be able to learn. But the teacher had made a call at that point to say that that was not happening, that couldn't happen, and that needed to be explored. And just throwing them back in, it's completely undermining for the for the member of staff, um, and isn't isn't going to you know it's, it's setting the pupil up for failure as well because it means that they're going to go back in. They may well not be ready to go back in, even if they've assured the SLT member absolutely, I'm going to go back in, I'm going to behave because the situation hasn't really been resolved. Hi, Carl's calling in. Let's see what he has to say. Hello, Carl. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, behaviour's been an issue in schools, well, since the year dot. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no solution that works in any, with any single student mm. permanently. That's the biggest problem. You, you follow the procedures, that's all you can do. Uh, if the school's got a set, set of procedures and you follow them and are supported in that, then generally there's a success. That's what I've always found. Mm -hmm. That's certainly, you know, yeah, what Mabel was saying there, you know, turning them back in, you're not, you don't feel supported, do you, if, they, if they're just no. straight back in? And that's it. it. And it's making sure that you follow the procedures the school's got set up. Mm. School I'm in now, I, I'm going to be very honest, it failed its offstead. It was put into um, special measures as such. One of the reasons it was given was behaviour. Mm. I was just started there recently. When I went for an interview, I would have said there was no behaviour issues, and mm. generally there isn't. 
looking around. Same with any school, there's a handful. Mm-hmm. But they're dealt with. Yeah. And you know that if you call for support, you will get that support. Mm-hmm. If you make a decision and that decision is supported, it'll be supported there and then. If you've made the wrong decision, mm-hmm. you'll be spoken to later, but you're supported there and then on the spot. Yeah. And I, and I think yeah. that's what it is, isn't it? You know, coming back to that, returning them to, to the classroom, there may well need to be a conversation. You know, we, we know that there are some, and, and some of that conversation is, you know, there are issues with the class, there are issues with behaviour management, there might be a development um, issue that's going on there. There are things to explore, but you don't undermine a member of staff. No, and that, that's never a good issue to get into. As I said, it's with... <laughs> 30 years experience mm. um, teaching, I've, I've come across a lot. Yeah. I've had to restrain kids at times. I've had to do all sorts. And it's always done with the situation, you deal with the situation that you're at in at the mm. time. And you then get the support you need from the other staff at the time. Um, and you move on from it. Mm. And the first rule is that the next day is a fresh start. Yeah. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, and 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 I think that you see students they they come and they can be seen. You know, if they've really kicked off, there's a bit of trepidation, and they're still perhaps hanging on to thinking, well, how's this going to be? But if that's been, you know, as as long as you know that something's been dealt with, and and that you know the conversation's been had, and and if there was a consequence that that was appropriate for that, that's that's happened, then it is, as you say, it's it's completely new, fresh start. And, and I think that when I was working with that student back when I was first in education, um, he was always expecting the teachers to, you know, now they're, and, and indeed me, you know, he'd pushed people away because he expected them to, you know, give up on him. You know, I'm, I'm really hard. I'm really difficult. You're going to give up on me in a week. And so they'd push back and expect you to be hanging on to that. And, and actually, we don't because we're professionals. We've had the conversation. We've dealt with the situation and, and we do move on. Um, but I think what you also said right at the start there, that um, every you know what works one day actually might not work the next day. And I think the more complex behaviour issues, yes, routines are important. Structures are important. Systems are important. But sometimes you have to kind of think on your feet a little bit about how you're going to adapt to make something work because uh, for some of those students, it really doesn't sort of two days in a row. Totally. And that's the thing. It's the individual student, the individual situation. There's so many factors involved in it that it's a judgment call at the time. Mm. You've got to make the judgment call. Mm. It may be the right one. It may not be. You, You hope it is the right one. Yeah. With experience, you get to that point. And that's the thing. It's that development of that experience. And that's where CPD comes into it. Mm. Um, new staff are walking into situations they, they may not be familiar with. Yeah. Some new staff have come in from experiences from other areas, um, for example, um, serving in the army. So they have a background where they understand uh, how to deal with people and possibly. Um, and others don't. You could have somebody who's straight out of university, comes straight into teaching. They've not got any experience of dealing mm-hmm. with that necessarily. And you need to support them. And you yeah. need to give them more support than somebody who's got 20, 30 years of experience and has mm-hmm. proven that they've got behaviour management skills. Mm. 
So that's, I think it's really in interesting to see. And I know the, the ECF um, has got a lot of criticism. And there are a lot of issues in how it's being perhaps implemented. But when you look at it and you look at the breakdown, um, that area of teaching routines, being explicit about expectations and, and really supporting people to develop their behaviour management. It used to, you know, I, I'm sure your experience may have been similar to mine, but it was very much sink or swim. You kind of, you off, off you go, there's your class, let's see what happens. And if the class seems to have not killed each other at the end of it, that was quite successful. Well done, you. Um, yeah. So there is a lot more support coming in place now. Oh, totally. And, and they need it. And it is important. Um, we want teachers to stay in teaching. Yeah. The the decay curve um, teachers leave after five years hasn't altered in 30 years. No. The, the, the one that I, I got shown it this year um, when I, because of ECF training, they, they showed it there. And I saw it in 1992 when I was training. It's the mm. exact same curve. It hasn't altered. So we need to do something to change that or we're going to lose teachers constantly. Absolutely. We want teachers to stay in the classroom. We want them to be there. We want to develop their careers. Mm. All of that is CPD and all of that needs time and support. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you, you raise an interesting point there again as well, you know, this staying in the classroom. Um, and, and there really has been this, this view, this trajectory that, uh, you know, you're going to do a few years in the classroom, then you're going to be head of department, then you're going to be this, then you're going to be that. And I was, uh, there was an interesting tweet, I think it was Amy Forrester, uh, was asking about this idea of rotation within senior leadership team. I don't know if you came across it, but this idea that, you know, you did two years as curriculum and assessment, um, and then you did two years as pastoral and behavioural, and then, you know, you kind of rotated around. And, you know, I, I can see... There is a there's a development opportunity there, but my question would always be: is what is, is is that the right thing for the school? Is that the right thing for the pupils? Do we do things that are about development opportunities for the the, the kind of the senior leader, or do we do it because it's the right thing for our school? And again, it was all coming back to well, because when they're the deputy head, so when these assistant principals are uh, you know doing this rotation. When they're deputy head, they need to have that view, or when they're head, they need to have that view. So it's always this idea that you've got to move on. There's, you know, you're not staying in the classroom, you're not staying as head of department. You, there's another step to go. Yeah, it was an interesting conversation I had with um, a head teacher the other day, uh, where we were talking about development of staff. Mm. The role of a head teacher is to develop the staff. Mm. Is one of the views I have. Uh, to, to develop in, in whatever way is necessary. Because the, this discussion came about because of a, a teacher that I'd heard about who was applying for a job elsewhere, and then suddenly the head teacher in their own school said, oh, no, no, please don't go, please don't go, put huge amounts of pressure on the teacher saying, we need you here, uh, you're such a great teacher, there may be an opportunity in the future for you here. Mm. And the teacher was feeling guilty about applying for the job elsewhere. Mm. But they were, the development in their own school wasn't happening. Yeah. So although this head teacher was promising them every all the, the world, it wasn't happening. Mm. Whereas the role of a head teacher is to develop the staff. Mm. Now that, as you said, in um, SLT, that does mean that they should be developing them, not necessarily rotating them round, but mm. maybe having them shadow another member of SLT yeah. to see That's what that role takes. That's absolutely my view, uh, you know, the idea of shadowing. And that's something, 
Um, in my role, I, I've kind of asked um, my my line manager if I can shadow her to see some of the aspects of her work that uh, I don't necessarily come into contact. What that looks like, so you know, I think that that opportunity to see and to understand is really important. But um, yeah, I, I, I just wasn't sold on this idea that because they'll need it when they move up, that's why we should do it. And and some schools they've got such a strong SLT system and, and a culture that that's not going to make any any kind of real issue. But for others, if you haven't got the right person who's in charge of behaviour, coming back to kind of our original point, then then things are going to get difficult. I and mean, we're saying, well, you know, we're just going to give them a chance to bed in. You, can, you can't give a chance to bed in with, with behaviour because it could be all over the place by the end of it, couldn't it? Exactly. And yeah, no, absolutely. And it is, it's the right person in the right role. Yes, SOT need to have a widespread understanding if they want mm. to move on to deputy head or head teacher. But that's part of their development and it's part of mm. how the head teacher of the school develops their, their staff. Yeah. And that, that comes, again, back down to CPD, which is the whole what you were talking about to start with. Absolutely. And I, but I also think, you know, when you kind of first joined the call, you, you said about behaviour being this, it's been, it's been an issue for so long. The, the, I'm not dismissing, I'm not saying that there aren't issues with behaviour in schools. I've, I've been in plenty where it's been very, very difficult, very, very fraught. Um, I've even been in a situation where, you know, the, the uh, senior leaders were kind of almost hiding from a particular situation that was going on in the school because it, it was really quite dangerous. Um, and, and that's a, a worry in itself. But there's also an element of moral panic about it too, isn't there? That, you know, young people misbehaving well, yeah, kind of, you know, <laughs> young people misbehaving, being delinquents and, 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 and doing all that. They, they are railing against the rules and the regulations and the systems, partly because that's what they do. That's that, you know, they, they rail against their parents' rules. They rail against school rules. Um, they rail against society rules. It's, it's where, you know, it's how we perhaps contain that and give them the safe space, I suppose, to, to rail against that without yeah. causing themselves and other people harm um but yeah but certainly you know and by other people harm i also mean their teachers you know there's no reason why teachers have to put up with abuse and various other yeah. things that happen no, absolutely and that's the key part it, there's got to be a line that if they cross that line then there's mm. a, a significant punishment yeah uh, and, and it is it's the safety and it's health and safety for everyone and mm. it's all, all those factors have to come into it yeah. Um, as I said, I've had to restrain students before. Uh, mm -hmm. There was one point where a, basically a boy was at a red mist, was going after another lad. He would have killed him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was at a year nine going after a year seven. Uh, he would have completely and utterly pulverised the lad. I, told, mm -hmm. I warned him, I stepped in between them, I warned him what I was going to do. I had to put him into a headlock. Mm -hmm. Now, I know how to do that. Other teachers wouldn't necessarily. I had no, enough members of staff around. <laughs> I had enough members of staff around me that they could see me doing it and they saw me warn them, they saw me give all the, the opportunities mm -hmm. for them to calm down. I, I had to fill all the paperwork out afterwards because I mm -hmm. handled a student. But because I'd done it correctly, there was mm -hmm. no comeback. Yeah. And the shock of me actually putting the lad into the headlock brought brought him out of the whole the whole thing. He immediately mm -hmm. just calmed straight down because you're like, What's happened? He didn't expect it. Mm. 
but and I think that's what I've relied on when I've intervened in in kind of fights, which I, I have done because you kind of just do, don't you? You see somebody's going to hurt somebody else, and then, and then the next thing you know, you're you're intervening and you're trying to to kind of stop it, and it's not yeah. just necessarily going to be diffused by you saying, "Please don't do that." So you you kind of you know I, I physically, rightly or wrongly, put myself between students where where it's been the you know what I've seen as the appropriate thing to do and I've very much relied on the fact that that red mist will lift because they suddenly realize that they've got a, you know this female teacher standing in front of them and yeah. they're not going to have to actually throw that punch that was that was going that way and I've been and I, I guess I've been lucky that that, yeah. that hasn't actually landed oh, absolutely and it is you've got to do as you said it's the appropriate thing to do You've got to make, you, you're making a judgment call. You look at the situation. There are times where I would not get involved in a fight. I, I would stay out of it because I know mm. that, the, the, for example, two year 11 lads, if they're larger than me and everything else, I will not get between them. Mm. Um, I will call for support and then we'll deal with it. But other times I will get between them if I feel mm. I can. If, the, if they're more reasonable, even though they're in the middle of that sort of situation, it's every point, whenever you're dealing with behaviour, it's your judgement as to what mm. you've got to do at the time to deal with the situation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're probably more sensible than me, uh, Carl, because you, you, you pause and think, whereas I, I think I tend to react. And as I say, you know, probably the worst situations I've seen in terms of fights have been kind of between girls. Um, and, um, and perhaps that has a slightly different effect on how we we view it and and how we might intervene but but there's been some really quite difficult violent situations there um going on but uh, I, I have for more than one occasion stepped between two year 11 lads and um, thought about the consequences afterwards um rightly rightly or wrongly but uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still here to tell the tale but um, yeah. ultimately, what, what we all want in schools is we want to do the right thing by these children. We want to give them the right opportunities. We want to keep them safe. And I think that is often lost in, in a lot of yeah. the discussions around behaviour. And, and certainly on social media, we end up with these two camps. You go into school and everybody just wants to do the right thing. They want to provide them the right opportunities, give them the education, support them. Um, Mabel says here, you know, in early years, key stage one, it begins with use your words rather than your fists. And if they don't have the words, then providing and modelling those words. And actually, I don't think it's that different at key stage three and key stage four. We, you know, it was, we're still, you know, saying, right, we're going to deal with this by talking it through mm. as opposed yeah. to with the fists. But sometimes we don't get to find out that the fists are about to fly until uh, that they're already mid-flow, mid I suppose. Uh, that's it, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things, so many situations going on that we are not necessarily aware of mm. that can trigger things. Yeah, and things from outside. Um, certainly that, that was always a huge issue. You know, some, something that had happened outside the night before, the morning, somebody got a text message, you know, back to kind of the, the, the kind of the reports of phones and social media, you know, somebody's sent a text or, or, or shared something mid-morning and all, all of a sudden you've got, you know, 50 year 10s and year 11s gunning for each other um, in the corridor. And that's the first you're hearing about it is when you suddenly see the crowd movement as opposed yeah. to any slow build up. So interesting situations. Joe said one time a year three child held a chair above another child's head during a computing lesson because he was angry about a game during break. 
and the SLT response was to ask me what I did to cause it to happen. Oh, it's, it's just heartbreaking. And I suppose, and, and it reminds me sometimes with CPD, where, when there's a lot of focus on what the teacher does rather than thinking about the learning of the pupils, it's so much easier in, in many ways to control and question and discuss and explore the teacher's behaviour and the teacher's responses and the teacher's thoughts than it is to deal with those those differences there. Um, Rachel wants to call in, so thank you. Um, Absolutely, no problem. Oh, no, Thanks she... very much for talking. Take yeah. care, have a good day. Thank you very much for calling in. Oh, Rachel, I think you've gone again. So if you want I'm to try and figure try out how to end the call. <laughs> try to figure out how to end the call is always fun here. Um, I haven't even mentioned marking yet, but I, th I think probably I I've, I've packed lots into this show. But so if you want to call in again, Rachel, I'd love to, to hear, hear your thoughts. Um, I remember one incident where um, a student had made it impossible for us to continue with the lesson. He was being quite a, a abusive towards other pupils and, uh, and was being quite rude to me, um, calling me some quite interesting names. And the person who came in to collect him, their first response was to say, it's really hot in your room. And um, the other students were aghast because they felt that that, that, that had been almost immediately thrown in as, as an explanation as to why the student hadn't been behaving well. Um, and, and they were, you know, I didn't have to react. They reacted. So, so that was quite an interesting one. Hello, Rachel, are you here with me? No, I keep clicking invite, but um, it might be me. It might be my technical skills or my lack of technical skills that's causing causing that issue. Um, the school was adopting when the adult change approach. Oh. And, and, you know, I, I certainly think that um, how we perceive, how we think about um behavior how we think because again you know we can only control our responses um it can be useful but it has to happen within a system of a structure hello are you there rachel i i can't hear you i'm afraid hmm I'm dying to know what she wanted to say now. And I've, I've literally got three minutes. You, are you there? I, I can't hear you. I don't know, maybe, I was gonna say maybe it's where Carl, hello, are you speaking? Have you unmuted? It's not appearing on my little screen either. Mm. No. Oh, I think there needs to be a whole other show then where where um, we can hear what you had to say. Because I, I really can't hear anything, which is a real shame. I am going to finish on marking just because I can't not um, because I got really involved in some of the discussions around it. Uh, English teacher absolutely loved marking, um, got a real dopamine hit from it actually. Um, I remember marking my first ever um, 
Romeo and Juliet essays and um, absolutely amazed my year 10 had understood apparently I'm weird Th thanks thanks Mark uh, I, I'd, I'd understood uh, the students had understood what I'd explained it was just this it's, it was amazing because I could see things that we talked about things that I taught them and it, and it was you know these extended essays and it was the, perhaps the first extended essay that um, anyone had done for me and uh, and I loved it and so that kind of kept me going for a, a number of years a really intense marking program and um, people talked to, uh, about me and called me um, endearingly I, I think that I was this marking machine because I always you know I cracked on with marking spent a lot of time doing it and then I kind of had an epiphany probably about five six years ago that that probably wasn't the best way of approaching it and although I was putting a lot of hours in um, a, it was not, it, you know, that was possible for me. It wasn't possible for others. Um, B, I don't actually think it was helping my students as much as I thought it was. And I was very much doing it for me. And so that called into question why I should be doing it. They loved my marking. The students did love my marking. But when I shifted to whole class feedback, they also loved that too. So um, I just wanted to end on that and throw that open so that people can carry on arguing and discussing that on Twitter because I have come to the end. It is my last show for a while. Thank you ever so much for the people coming in. I'm absolutely gutted that I didn't get to hear Rachel. So I'm hoping we'll have a chance to, to exchange ideas and um, have a lovely weekend. We've got Emma Williams coming up and she's talking about books, a topic that I wanted to talk about as well. So that was another great one. Thank you for everyone who called in and um, I will probably see some of you on Twitter soon. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.